You're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio right here with Race Capital. Stay tuned. Who keep us safe? We keep us safe. Who keep us safe? We keep us safe. Who keep us safe? We keep us safe. Who keep us safe? And that was Fraud Life, We Keep Us Safe, by the Freedom Future Collectives out of D.C. Today on Race Capital, we discuss the details of the new crimes and the legalization bills from our co-host Chelsea Higgs-Wise of Marijuana Justice, featuring the voice of DMV-based cannabis attorney Suli Stenson-Clay. Later, we hear directly from Uhuru Roe, ahead of the Justice for Uhuru rally, this Saturday at 12 p.m., demanding clemency for Uhuru. He tells his story from inside Greensville Correctional. And, as always, we kick off our episode with the latest local, national, and international headlines during our Race Capital Reframe. You are listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM with me, Naomi Isaac. And me, Kalia Harris. And me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise. Let's get right into the reframe, starting out with local news. This week in our eviction watch, there are 155 unlawful detainers on the books, with Tuesday being the highest day with 48 unlawful detainers. The numbers are creeping back up. Just as a reminder to our listeners that unlawful detainers are the first step that a landlord takes to evict a tenant and eviction during a pandemic is attempted murder. Moving into statewide news, a proposal that would have diversified Virginia's governor's schools met its bitter ending this past week in a motion made by Democrat Senate Majority Leader Dick Sasslaw, whose district includes a prestigious regional magnet school where fewer than 5% of the more than 1,800 students in attendance are Black or Latinx. According to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the bill, which was introduced by Delegate Rosalind Tyler and endorsed by the State Secretary of Education, directs the Board of Education to create guidelines for the state's 19 governor's schools to address pipeline issues and to develop best practices for being more inclusive of underserved groups such as Black and Latinx students. Y'all, I find this really interesting because I applied to Maggie Walker in high school and I did not get in. And it was one of the most rigorous testing scenarios that I've been through. And I have gone through a lot of school. And for them to only accept mostly white, mostly non-Black students into that school where my grandparents went when it was segregated, to see how these people have defended killing this legislation and to see that it was Democrats is like, what is the blue wave if it's not doing what it needs to do? Yeah, I also remember applying to Appomattox, Maggie Walker, getting waitlisted after, you know, being all honors classes with the same white folks, getting the same opportunities to like skip grades as all the white folks around me. And somehow it ended up being that all the white folks that applied got in and all the black kids that applied got waitlisted. And so I think this is just a reminder that these institutions, quote unquote, of higher learning are just another barrier for black and brown people to keep education segregated. And I'll jump in and say that my godfather is also one of the people that attended the original Maggie Walker school. And my sister attended the governor school, Maggie Walker, and has many experiences and stories of how 
there is a black group. There still is a black alumni group because the few black folks that are there have to work very hard to stay together and be able to survive. She graduated in 2009. So this is something that we're still seeing in recent times. And it was really disgusting to see this bill killed. And this is not something that should ever be happening in Maggie L. Walker's name. Moving on to more catastrophe and the Virginia General Assembly. Dominion lobbyists have been hard at work as they attempt to influence legislators to advance a bill that would allow Dominion to profit off of their ratepayers by charging them a fee that would pay for electric school bus batteries in the Commonwealth. Now, according to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the bill would direct the Virginia State Corporation Commission to greenlight legislation that allows Dominion and participating school districts to run a maximum of 1,000 electric school buses in Dominion's service territory. Environmental advocates have raised concerns about Dominion's role in this program, specifically that they get to profit off of this program. Now, how are, again, are we legislating for more profit for Dominion? Does Dominion not owe its ratepayers already like $300 million? How are they charging people when they owe them money? I have trauma from the stimulus check. I also wonder about the bus drivers who still have not been paid. Also just seems unethical to have the largest utility corporation be able to control green, quote unquote, green energy now. I just want to make a note that this particular bill that we're talking about in the Senate was championed by Senator Lucas, Senator Luis Lucas, just as a note. And we know that most Democrat elected officials have deep connections to Dominion. So it's no surprise that they are being the first people tapped when it comes to implementing any kind of green energy program. And mentioning of that particular Naomi and my comment right before of Senator Luis Lucas, it's important to know one other thing when we're looking at fundraising and accepting donations, particularly from the Democrats. Y'all, if folks are saying they are not taking money from certain corporations, watch how they are accepting money from the Virginia Black. Black Caucus. The Virginia Black Caucus takes money from all types of corporations and then they give it back out. So just watch how the money is flowing. And this particular patron of this bill takes a lot of money in their name and the caucus's name, and then they give it out. Dominion Kratz. So bringing in some information that will hopefully inform the Virginia General Assembly, according to a new survey conducted by Justice Forward Virginia and the data for progress, 59% of Virginia voters oppose keeping marijuana possession in a vehicle illegal. The poll also revealed that eliminating all mandatory minimums and allowing for the consideration of evidence about a defender's mental state and mental health during a criminal trial gained notable support during Virginia voters who were served. So I'm really grateful that organizations like Justice Forward are able to put these types of questions out to voters and have some real polling data to give the legislators, because as we will hear a little bit later in the episode about the new crimes, keeping marijuana illegal in the vehicle is actually one of them in this quote unquote legalization bill, as well as just giving some very hard facts about mandatory minimums, as well as, you know, people with mental health should maybe have that consideration during their criminal trial. What I'm hearing is that people don't want to get locked up for having marijuana in their car. They don't want mandatory minimums, and they actually want a criminal justice system that looks drastically different than it does right now. 
I feel like that's so important to name because they say that they do all this for public safety, but the public is saying that they would feel more safe were the police not to be involved when it comes to traffic stops and marijuana, when it comes to the way that people are transporting cannabis. So I think it's really important to like name that overwhelmingly almost 60% of Virginia voters don't feel more safe when the police stop and arrest Black folks or any kind of folks for keeping marijuana in their possession while driving. Well, you said it, Naomi, the Virginia legislators are saying they're doing it for public safety, and they are. It's those public safety law enforcement, the fraternal order of law enforcement. That's the public safety they're doing it for. Moving on, two Black siblings in Richmond are on a mission to recontextualize the legacy of the historic Jackson Ward neighborhood ahead of its 150th anniversary. Anjali and Sasha Moon have established the Jackson Project as a way to recontextualize the origins of a neighborhood that was created by Confederate sympathizers to honor notable racist Andrew Jackson and perpetuate anti-Blackness, but instead became an integral part of Black enterprise and empowerment. I'm really excited to see that the Moon legacy continues here in Richmond. These sisters' father is the notable trailblazer, August Moon, the radio host here in Richmond that highlighted many of the Black liberation stories that also featured Arthur Ashe right here in Richmond and has a lot of history if you look him up. So congratulations to them. We will see what comes there. Moving into national news, we'll start off with our COVID watch. Nationally, the number has hit over 28 million total COVID-19 cases in the United States, and this week the nation surpassed 500,000 deaths due to the virus. Half a million deaths in less than a year. I can't believe that I'm reporting that on the air. And even since that number and all the news has come out, we're actually closer to about 514,000 deaths. So yeah, that's where we are, y'all. And in Virginia, we have a total number of 567,039 total cases, and we've had 7,658 deaths in the Commonwealth. So I read a really interesting article this week that talked a lot about how Biden's COVID-19 strategy is very similar to Donald Trump's COVID-19 strategy. The author talked a little bit about this idea of a suppression strategy versus elimination. And so a lot of nations that have decided to go with the elimination strategy, which is going for zero community transmission versus trying to lower the rate or reduce the rate, which is a suppression strategy. The fact that Biden is pretty much taking the same route is pretty concerning. And I think a lot of people are afraid to kind of name the fact that these are the same strategies. And something that I've really been thinking a lot about is the connection to how the government handles police violence. We decide that we want to reform or reduce the number of people that are killed by police each year. The same thing is happening with COVID-19. They're saying we want to reduce the amount of people that get the virus, that die from the virus, as we're crossing half a million deaths less than a year. So this is something that I personally am going to dig into a lot more, but I just wanted to put it into our listeners' ear that these strategies don't stop, and it's the same thing no matter what it is that we're talking about, and it's killing Black people. And I think that uh, connection is really important just because, you know, anti-Blackness is a pandemic. So, you know, we have so much evidence of how they respond to pandemics and we're seeing it come to light that it historically is exactly the same. As you said, it's always reduction and never abolishing, never eliminating the actual thing that's killing people. 
And here it'd be easy, a national lockdown, monthly payments, allow people to stay in their home, give homes to those who do not have them and make sure that people can shelter in place. Doesn't even have to be a long time, just needs to happen to lower the rates, not triple masking, right? And depending on vaccinations to set us free. When we know that that's one of two parts of a strategy that will get us to elimination of COVID-19. So we're fighting a losing battle right now. And I just wanna know what is going to change because people are all go, go Biden and I'm seeing nothing but death. Well, they were saying we gonna hold them accountable. And now when we compare, pull up the papers, the exact same text, the strategy is the same, essentially the same, you know, like when Trump 12 months ago was suggesting that we send kids back to school, everybody wanted to be like, oh, white supremacist this, oh, white supremacist that, bet. Now when Biden's saying we should send kids back to school, people are trying to rationalize it. And I just don't get it because it's the same. It's not even like they're sugarcoating it at this point. It's exactly the same strategy. I made one comment about it and someone asked me, did I want Trump back? And I said, before the election, it was, well, do you want him to stay? And now after the election, it's, well, do you want him back? We can't have an opinion. And more COVID news. Research is coming out of the University of Liverpool that shows that as the coronavirus continues to evolve, new variants, which make the virus more infectious, may be able to inhabit the same cells at the same time creating a new species of coronavirus disease. So that means that we can have multiple variants at one time, creating a whole new genetic material that will create who knows what kind of species of of COVID. And that's something we just, every week, (laughs) there's something new with these variants. So we really do have to watch the research and how it's showing up. I also was reading an article that was just speaking to um, the virus being able to essentially mutate with other viruses, which is like a whole new kind of different danger that you have to worry about considering that it's the winter when people get sick. What happens if COVID mixes with the flu? Like I just have all kinds of paranoia and just uh, fear from this possibility. And like you said earlier, the fact that they're doing nothing to make the situation better just only makes me more scared every day because the numbers are truly only going up. And that's ridiculous after a year. Yes, and there's even more data that is out that is suggesting that Biden's plan to reopen schools during his first 100 days in office could increase the spread of coronavirus, especially if schools do not take substantial disease prevention efforts while the case counts remain high. This data is consistent with other global research, which shows that adult transmission of coronavirus is the largest concerns with opening elementary schools because schools have teachers and they have staff and kids have parents and caretakers. They also illustrate the challenges of following disease prevention measures, especially physical distancing and indoor masking that would make it safer to reopen schools. The recent decline in COVID-19 cases has sparked a lot of hope that more schools will be able to adopt in-person learning, whether hybrid models that mix in-person and online or just completely full-on in-person. So this is, y'all know, schools are are opening up, whether it's universities and colleges or at the K through 12 level where people are considering are already opening. And the research is showing that it's possible that kids are not going to stay six feet apart in the classroom. 
they shut down schools so that they didn't have to integrate. And so all I'm saying is that this is not, not a very crazy idea. They done did it before. And I just wish that there was that same level of urgency of keeping kids safe from like a deadly virus as there was when it came to mixing races and making sure that black kids were not able to receive a better education. But back then, Nomi, their parents were still at work. And that was the difference, right? So that's exactly what all of this is, is going back to school to get that dollar, that funding, and make sure that parents, uh, especially K through 12 parents, are back in the labor force. Yeah, I think that's important. Like, not only do they find children just absolutely disposable, but it's more so, like you said, that we got, they got to get the labor force back up and running. And the reality is that the labor force is running, right? Parents are wondering how they're going to continue caring for their children because there is no universal child care in our country. And I am reading the comments on different school pages and reading the parents that are, you know, willing to send their children back because they don't have childcare or they do realize that they don't have enough material resources to make virtual school work. So my question is, why are we not investing the money that they're investing to reopen the schools and making sure that parents have childcare and that they're able to have the resources that they need to be able to learn at home and not have equity hubs where black and brown students are sharing Wi-Fi in one space. I just don't get it. I really don't. And I do feel for parents. I really do. Just reminds me of the way that we don't fund housing. We just continue to fund education in the way to say, well, the schools need more money because the kids are hungry and the kids aren't performing well. Give the schools more money. Well, the kids don't have a place to sleep. The kids don't have access to healthy foods. And so again, we're just funding the wrong things here and, and we're missing and leaving huge gaps. The other thing I'll say about gaps is that there's this large concern about the summer slump, about students that are not performing at the level that they should be during this pandemic, where we've lost half a million people, where folks are being evicted at ridiculous rates and unemployment is so high. I just don't understand why we're maintaining these arbitrary standards for how children should be performing during this time. On that note, the Biden administration is requiring states to administer standardized tests this year. The decision means that schools will have to find ways to safely administer tests to tens of millions of students nationwide, many of whom are still learning remotely. If y'all remember last year, the standardized testing was canceled as the pandemic closed school buildings across the country. This year, it's been unclear whether the Biden administration would let that happen again. Already, several states, including California, Georgia, Illinois, Michigan, New Jersey, and New York, have already asked or said that they plan to request a waiver from this year's testing requirements entirely. Why is our state not on that list? That's why I said, who, who in Virginia is supposed to be making that request? Department of Education, who, who, who making that request? Yeah, we need to call them because it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And like, I feel like this is just intentionally creating disparities. Like they know what the outcome will be. Yo, half of this school year, students have just been going in and out between virtual, in-person, unsure, don't know what supplies we'll need. This is ridiculous to, to put this on folks and to just spring it on you. By the way, happy Black History Month. You're going to get tested in about six weeks. And as someone that has test-taking anxiety, like to find out in the very academic semester that you have to take the test, that's a requirement. It's just 
not something that makes it so that you will test positively at all. And we know that funding is tied to these test scores. So it's not just take a little test and that's it. The region's funding is determined, you know, in part based on these scores. Well, more devastating nationwide news. The Intercept has recently reported that between May 2020 and September 2020, the IRS stopped sending stimulus checks to incarcerated people and actually started requesting that the almost 1 million incarcerated folks that did receive a stimulus check return the money. Some facilities even admitted to automatically taking up to 50% of the checks before they were given to incarcerated people. I remember reading this and just like having to close my laptop walk away, come back, you know? I just have no words because I remember seeing the post, you know, help make sure that incarcerated people know how to get their checks and to know that they were, some people are required to return it. They're just taking money off the top. They were also using the money before it was deposited into folks' accounts to like pay for court fees and fines as well. So, you know, there was a lot of scraping and scraping away at this money that's supposed to be aid, you know, to help people survive while living in a cage in a deadly pandemic. Just disgusting. Absolutely. Well, it doesn't really get better. This week, it's also been reported that last week's winter storm claimed the lives of at least 32 people in Texas, though the true death toll remains unknown at this point. Some folks died trying to keep warm, resulting in carbon monoxide poisoning and house fires. Other victims died after contracting hypothermia as temperatures dropped to the single digits across the states. Officials are now saying that those who died were overwhelmingly elderly. The thing is with Texas, it's not like the electricity went out. It was decided. And so I just, these are deaths just like COVID where they're completely preventable. Wait, they turned off the electricity? Oh, yeah, they had to because they had poor infrastructure. So they turned off the power grid because of their own lack of preparation, just like years prior. You know, advocates and folks in Texas have been complaining about this problem for years now. It was it was actually completely preventable. Like when we when we say that we truly mean to the 100 percent that it was preventable. So everyone, please just check on your elderly folks because they are really struggling right now with a lack of just caretaking and access to resources. So check in on your folks. Is there any sign of relief or like when they get power? And I don't mean like bags of food and batteries. I mean, like, is there any? I think up until this point, most of the relief is coming from guess who? Mutual aid groups. And I think folks are actually facing at this point higher electric bills. So they're being charged more on top of like losing people and also suffering from like the worst coldest weather in recent history. What I have seen is AOC was crowdsourcing for Texas. We're not passing legislation. We're just crowdsourcing from the people. We have elected officials running GoFundMes. If you don't get in that Congress and pass a freaking stimulus check, like this is so frustrating. It's really awful. One of my friends that lives down in San Antonio sent me a picture of the electric company that was saying that they're going to give people payment plans for up to 10 years to pay off the debt that they owe. So that's where we're at with electric companies. Do y'all think Dominion would have did anything much different? No, I was just going to say that would be us. And now it would be your electricity bill is so high and in the rears, you're not getting an apartment and you can't even get it turned on when you move. And in Matamoros at the border, nearly a thousand asylum seekers, including children waiting to be processed into the United States, were held outside in freezing temperatures. The encampment in northern Mexico lost power and all water sources froze as the temperatures dipped last week. So a little context, 
These are asylum seekers who have been held at the border from the Trump era policies that made it so that they had to stay in Mexico before they could come into the United States. So there's about 25,000 asylum seekers left to be processed through before they make it here. And they were left outside. And when we talk about the cold temperatures and what's happening on our side of the border, I just want us to also realize that all of this is also intersected with immigration. And while we're speaking of immigration, the border security and immigrant detention industry is booming thanks to both Democrats and Republicans who have constantly increased spending, including nearly $55.1 billion to contracts from 2008 through 2020. 13 major companies, including CoreCivic, Deloitte, Elbit Systems, GEO Group, General Atomics, General Dynamics, G4S, IBM, Latos, Lockheed Martin, L3 Harris, Northrop Grumman, and Palantir are the main recipients of contracts and also spent a lot of money during the 2020 elections. In fact, Joe Biden received three times more than Trump from these companies' top executives last election cycle to the tune of nearly five and a half million dollars. What do we always say? Democrats deport too. So I was watching the State of Black America hosted by the Movement for Black Lives on Tuesday night. And let me tell you, a good cis panelist on there got on here and called Joe Biden 45 and a half. And let me tell you, y'all, it's stories like this that make me think 45.5. And then I think about reopening schools and the COVID plan, 45 and a half. We here. And numbers don't lie. These numbers really just speak volumes, three times as much as Trump. And Trump was saying, build a wall. Folks, when we are talking about what 45 and a half is doing and what Democrats are doing with immigration, I urge us all to look deeper into the virtual wall that Democrats are interested in building. They don't want to go brick by brick. They are very much more interested in geo-policing at the border, and they're willing to put money into that. And there's a reason why these companies like the GEO Group that is also in Palestine and many other places of occupation is investing into Joe Biden. Yeah, I saw someone tweet something like a liberal tweeted, oh yeah, this is a less than ideal situation where it's like, first off, caging kids is like, you know, that's more than less than ideal. It's it's literally genocide. So his comment was, this is a less than ideal situation, but at least he's trying. And it's like, as you said, these numbers don't lie. So how can someone be trying when they're exceeding the record of someone that everyone was able to consider an overt white supremacist and he's exceeding those numbers? How is he trying? What, why are we giving him time and not urging or demanding any kind of, not even accountability, but just demanding more? Like, that's your man? <laughs> the last thing I'll say about the numbers is the number of deportations that we have seen to date from this administration does not lie. Y'all, Black people are being deported. Black and brown folks are being deported. Like, that's happening right before our eyes as these companies are giving all this money to Joe Biden. We have to ask why. And the fact that there's been just so much violence and it hasn't even been 100 days, 
I'm scared for the rest of the administration. Well, that's the violence on the left. News from the right has come out that the far right white supremacist group known as the Oath Keepers had been planning to storm the Capitol for months ahead of the January 6th storming of the White House. According to the 21-page indictment, the insurrectionist, quote, did knowingly combine, conspire, confederate, and agree with each other and others known and unknown, end quote, to force entry to the Capitol and obstruct Congress from certifying the election of Joe Biden. The department have charged six more members of the group, which actively recruits military and ex-law enforcement with conspiracy. Yo. I just wanted to note that Goad Gatsby, who is a local investigative journalist reporter, did point out that Virginia Senator Amanda Chase was photographed with members of the Oath Keepers the day before January 6th. I found that a little interesting, but not shocking. All of this is on paper, in writing, in quotes. What they gonna do? Nothing. Not a damn thing. It's just only surprising because when it comes to protests that are planned by Black liberationists, it could be planned 24 hours. It could be planned an hour in advance. They gonna come knocking. They gonna come running, come with the cuffs, come with the cars. And they had months, months to catch these people. And what did they do? Join them. <laughs> And Amanda Chase is still sitting in our legislature behind that plexiglass. Well, y'all, Jeff Bezos has reclaimed the title of the richest person in the world after Tesla shares recently decreased by nearly 3%. Bezos' net worth stands at over $186 billion. Meanwhile, the average Amazon employee makes just under $35,000 a year. Well, while we're on the topic of Amazon, workers in Alabama might be on their way to become the first Amazon warehouse to unionize. However, they are facing very fierce opposition from the multinational technology giant. According to the Payday Report, workers received emails Monday night offering them up to $3,000 in resignation bonuses in exchange for quitting ahead of the election. Workers who quit will then be ineligible to vote. And this is the first threat of, of unionization Amazon has faced in nearly seven years. Like Virginia, Alabama is also a right-to-work state. Right-to-work is an oft-misunderstood policy, but the AFL-CIO describes it as a law that makes it harder for working people to form unions and collectively bargain for better wages, benefits, and working conditions. In the Alabama warehouse, one of the employees' central demands is simply the ability to use the bathroom without the fear of pay deductions. The vote will continue through March 30th. Wow, power to the workers. And this is something that could truly shake up the South. Uh, so everyone definitely keep an eye out on what's happening in Alabama. I listened to a few interviews from the workers. And I just want to say, these are Black people that are on the front lines making this happen under the fear of all types of threats that the company is putting out. Not just those emails. I mean, it's they've been really threatened. And I just want to say, like, we are in solidarity with the workers of Amazon down there in Alabama. Well, it looks like big news is coming out of New Jersey. After more than three months since New Jersey voters voted to legalize weed, it's finally the law in the Garden State. Governor Phil Murphy signed three bills that decriminalize and legalize marijuana for adult use. The use or possession up to six ounces is decriminalized. That means no penalties. 
That means a repeal of the prohibition. And notably, there are restrictions on how police can stop and search those who may be using marijuana and also penalties on police that don't do it correctly and that have been proven to say that they have overstepped with their authority. Also out of New Jersey legalization on the side of social equity, 70% of total sales tax will go towards these, quote, impacted zones, end quote. It sounds like... Jersey is hearing the call to legalize it right. And let me tell y'all, what a beautiful feeling of this week to put some pressure on the Virginia General Assembly than to have so many of our demands met of repeal the prohibition of the 70% of no new crimes of not criminalizing youth. I mean, this New Jersey bill is actually pretty revolutionary in a legislative kind of way for the way that we work around youth because they truly have options as far as penalties that include things like calling your parents, a referral to services. And here in Virginia, our penalties include class three misdemeanors. I always just want to harp on the fact that you cannot decriminalize something while creating a new crime. That just is not how that works. That is not how any of this works. Well, y'all, out of Chicago, The mayor, Lori Lightfoot, says that it's, quote, just dumb, end quote, that people are raising concerns over her decision to distribute nearly $300 million in COVID federal aid to the Chicago Police Department. Lightfoot faced widespread criticism that more relief money had been spent on policing than had been allocated to food housing, and other critical social services during this pandemic. According to the Chicago Tribune, quote, last year, the city received about $1.2 billion from the federal government as part of the CARES Act. Of the $47 million in discretionary spending, $281.5 million, nearly 60%, paid for personnel costs for the police department, end quote. Wow. Over half of the COVID money is going to police. This is Directly the problem. Personnel costs. They didn't even try to play around about the masks like Richmond did. Right. And we always have to be reminded that these police departments have upwards $200 million in funding. They have hundreds of millions of dollars already. So when it comes to distributing federal aid relief, should it not go to people who are making less than 35K a year, making less than 28, like people living in poverty? It's just, how can that be, quote unquote, just dumb? Why is it that our homies redistribute money better? We pass the same $20 back and forth and are better than all of the mayors that are getting all of this money from the government. I mean, I know it's not enough money, you know, but the bare minimum is that they could redistribute what they get correctly. They're saying that the solution to people being in crisis is to get rid of the people and not the crisis. And I I don't know, I think that's something that folks should keep in mind when they propose to offer more money to the police department rather than provide food aid or housing security. Or just propose money to institutions in general instead of writing us our checks. Moving on to what a lot of folks are sending thoughts and prayers, a news broke out that golf legend Tiger Woods suffered serious leg injuries after a car accident near Los Angeles. The 15-time major champion was extracted from his vehicle with the pry bar, and he was sent to a hospital in stable condition with injuries to both legs on Tuesday morning. 
there's a lot of conversation about what happened in that accident. And I'm just hoping that we continue to hope that he is okay before we start creating our own narrative on Tiger Woods. We'll keep following the story. Well, y'all, last week, the U.S. border agents kidnapped over 1,500 migrant children, according to CBS News. This past Sunday, 300 more children were kidnapped and taken into custody due to the increasing number of children being held in customs and border patrol facilities, which were originally designed to hold migrant adults. About 90 percent of the 8,000 available beds are occupied. And this Monday, the number of children being held by the Office of Refugee Resettlement reached 7,100, meaning there are less than 900 unoccupied beds. We had so much rightful outrage about Trump having kids in cages during his administration. I need us to bring back that same fire and outrage for these children that are in cages right now under this current administration. I just remember that I I spent a lot of time working for like white nonprofits. And I remember during that time where that was such a big topic of discussion that, you know, every single white Democrat wanted to talk about Trump and the kids in cages. And then as soon as I'd be like, well, you know, the Obama administration, oh, you know, like anything, you know, immediately becomes a non-issue. And I feel like that's what what's currently happening is that the numbers are getting more staggering. It's just more disgusting and more cool considering Again, the fact that we're in a pandemic and it's become such a non-issue for people. It's something that's like negotiable and it's people's lives. It's people's children. And my heart's truly just go out to all the kids right now that are actively being displaced and disposed of. And following up on a story that went viral a week or so ago out of Ohio, 24-year-old Black mother Shayna Bell was arrested in Liberty Township, Ohio, and charged with two counts of misdemeanor child endangerment after she left two of her children alone in the family's motel room while she worked her job at Little Caesars just down the street. Following her arrest, a GoFundMe page that she set up to secure permanent housing has exceeded its $5,000 goal, raising over $150,000 in funds for the family. So props to Shayna, and we hope the best for her and her family. Finally, in national news, rapper Bobby Smurder is free from prison after being sentenced to seven years in October of 2016. Smurder was picked up from jail by Migos member Quavo. A really great take about his story, in particular the criminal punishment system and our movement in abolition, is listening to Louder Than a Riot podcast on NPR. They give a couple episodes about his story, as well as how they use this RICO law against rappers who are now our influencers in the culture. And they talk a little bit how the RICO statute was used against civil rights and Black liberation leaders as well. And it's interesting in the story we said just a few minutes ago that the insurrectionists from January 6th, that they did conspire for the activities that went down on January 6th. But I heard nothing about RICO and anything that happened to these white folks. And so I think it's just really interesting that number one, congrats on getting out and congrats getting picked up on your friend. And also it's a big connection to the greater movement that we have going on right now. I get really scared, though, thinking about how long he's been in jail. Like I was like a freshman, I think, or towards the end of middle school. So it's been like a long time, a long time coming to see this man free. Yeah, like we were we were playing those jams. I remember during the good days of college. So (laughs) yeah, Bobby, we are still playing your hits. I saw that his plays are up on the platform. So I might give him a spin later. 
Well, moving on to international news. Although South Africa is the wealthiest nation in Africa, South Africans are now criticizing the government for its slow rollout of the COVID vaccine. Shocker. More than a third of COVID-19 cases on the African continent have been in South Africa, and there are now allegations that the South African government did not attempt to secure the vaccine until January. The country will use the Johnson Jackson vaccine, which is a single dose, because it's been shown to be more effective against the South African variant strain. They are now considering administering the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine to 100,000 people to monitor its impact before deciding if it should be used more widely. Well, y'all, COVID-19 cases are on the rise in Jamaica. Currently, the island is seeing about 299 new cases a day, which is about 99% of what they were seeing at the highest peak of infections. As more and more travelers continue to visit the global south for vacation, we will have to stay vigilant as to what that means for the black and brown lives at the places that they're traveling. Across the ocean in Barcelona, thousands have taken to the streets to protest Spain's restrictions on free speech following the arrest of Spanish rapper Pablo Hassel. Hassel was arrested based on government allegations that he violated what is known as Ley Mordaza, or the gag rule, after the rapper released a span of tweets over the course of several years criticizing the Spanish crown and the police. According to the Washington Post, the gag law was passed in 2015, making public protests by actual persons in front of parliament and other government buildings a disturbance of public safety and punishable by a fine of 30,000 euros. People who join in spontaneous protests near utilities, transportation hubs, nuclear power plants, or similar facilities would risk a jaw-dropping fine of 600,000 euros. Hassel and his supporters barricaded themselves inside Leva University, where the rapper was later seized and arrested. Hassel will be serving a nine-month prison sentence at the Leva prison on Ponent. His last words before his imprisonment were reportedly, they will never silence us, death to the fascist state. Wow, y'all. Wow. And I just want to say 30,000 euros is over $36,000 in the U.S. It's a lot of money for protesting. Yeah. And then even just taking unauthorized photos of law enforcement and other authorities could give you a penalty of up to 600,000 euros. So the freedom of speech of, in Spain has affected not only artists, but also reporters, which we've also seen locally and nationally here. So same strategies. And I would be remiss if I did not note that Spain is one of the original colonizing empires known for its violence throughout the global south and really all over. So the fact that they have issues with police and similar things that we're seeing here we just have to be aware as to how these issues all intersect. I just want to say after all that news, y'all, I want to wrap it up to say that Stevie Wonder is moving to Ghana. And low-key, high-key, I wish he would take me with him. Look, I don't blame him. I just want to say amen. Ashe, okay? It's a virtual world. We can get Stevie from over in Ghana. <laughs> I'm happy for him. Honestly, congrats to him. Yes, that's awesome. And I'm so happy for his whole family. Well, y'all, that is all for the Race Capital Reframe this week, the week of Wednesday, February 24th. And stay tuned for the rest of our episode where we are going to get into the Reefer Revolution Part 3. 
All right, Kalia, Nomi, Brace Capital listeners. I'm really excited to bring a clip that we had from this past Saturday's Canna Hour with Marijuana Justice every Saturday at 3 p.m. We've been inviting speakers from all over the nation to talk about their expertise, either in advocacy or the cannabis industry. And we always start off the Canna Hour with updates with the Virginia legislation. And we're going to kick off this episode with the updates that dive right on into these new crimes. And then stay tuned because you'll hear more from Suli Stinson Clay, who talks about all the tips and ensuring that you're ready for applying for social equity, as well as what you need to be thinking about as a state, as a collective, and as an individual when making sure you're ready. So stay tuned. My name is Chelsea Higgs-Wise. I'm the executive director for Marijuana Justice. Uh, we really exist to be here to repeal the prohibition and invest in Black communities. I don't know if you've been keeping up lately, but marijuana legalization is really flying through. It looks like they have actually chosen the conference. Well, I think we've talked a little bit about the process of the General Assembly. We had the bills introduced in the House. We had the bills introduced in the Senate. And then each chamber decided about the bills, and I'm going to be really honest with you all, that the bills have not been identical. They have very different components, and sometimes that can be really dangerous, and sometimes that means that we have an opportunity to get our language out there in the final version. But right now, I want to really emphasize to everyone that there is no consolidation on the bill language yet. So all of the celebratory pieces about getting it passed really just means that there is a political will to have this move forward. Now, the discussion and the devil and the details is something that is still being wrestled with and is going to continue, particularly this coming week. So I did mention that the conferences have been chosen. So they introduced it in the House and the Senate and their different chambers. And then in crossover, the bills literally crossed over and the House heard the Senate bill and the Senate heard the House, remembering that all legalization bills are not created equal. So understanding that they are very different and they're going to impact our Commonwealth very different as well. And so after crossover and, and during this crossover time, y'all, I'm going to be very honest that not much work was done on these bills. So whatever you did during that first round to send in your testimony, to email your legislator, I really want to say thank you because that was the major time for them to hear our voices. Unfortunately, a crossover, this was only a 30-day session. The governor did extend us into a special session for an extra 15 days, which normally happens because we don't ever have time. 30 days is not a lot of time to hear all of the bills. Definitely not a lot of time to be able to educate our legislators on a 500-page bill. And so as that went to crossover, they didn't take any more discussion. They didn't work on it much at all. So after crossover, they did pass it through the floor on each side, just conforming each bill to their own. So we still have two bills that look nothing alike on the House side and on the Senate side. So what happens now is because and what happens throughout our General Assembly, and this happens with every bill that has the House version and a Senate version that do not complement and are not identical, 
And just to say, this is why it's so important to do some organizing work with the House patron and the Senate patron to really make sure that those bills have the same components and values. Unfortunately, the administration controls the House version right now. And there's there's been a lot of back and forth with the governor's office about what legalization should really prioritize and what that looks like. So we're going to have to continue to educate the legislators because now we have conference. Conference is since these bills do not match, the House and the Senate has identified specific legislators to go into a conference room and have a very off the record secret meeting where they negotiate to consolidate these bills into one. Now, we don't know what the negotiation looks like. We don't know what those conversations are like. So it's important to us to continue to email these legislators about what is important. So I'm gonna go over this letter that Marijuana Justice, ACLU Virginia, Justice Forward and Rise for Youth really put together specifically. And we've been working with partners this entire time of organizations and stakeholders. And so we were able to get a total of 26 organizations signed to a letter to the governor into all of the legislators that talks about what is wrong just at the at the tip of the iceberg y'all with this legalization bill I'm really excited today because what I'm going to be doing in just a, a couple minutes is going over this letter, going over our priorities, and then just a minute, we're going to invite Suli Stinson Clay on, who is not out of Virginia, but has a lot of experience um, with the cannabis world, particularly with social equity, and they're going to be able to bring their expertise and share with some of us about that work. But right now, we're really going to dive into what's happening and what are our priorities. And remembering our priorities for legalization is to stop the criminality and stop the enforcement around just the possession of the plant, period. Um, what is a lot of conversation, what people are still really curious about is the regulatory business, the structure, the licenses. And again, why I'm really excited about our guest. But we are seeing right now that the legislators can only do so much, particularly in such a short session. And we want to ensure that legislators are fully informed on what they are voting on. Um, again, my name is Chelsea Higgs-Wise. I really hope that you are following on all of our social media platforms, THC Justice Now. Subscribe to our YouTube page. We are loading all of our Canna hours that we've had since General Assembly has started. You can see how the updates have come. You can see how the bills have come. And you can subscribe as well to our YouTube page there. Um, please make sure you're visiting our link tree and our social media bios and in that you can see our letter to the governor. In this letter, there are certain aspects that we really need to focus on. And the first one is to repeal the prohibition right now. All right, y'all. So we've asked legislators to legalize this for a less than one ounce and to be able to charge no penalties up to one ounce. We can talk about what the civil penalties might look like up to five ounces, which was the original proposal. But right now we need some type of threshold that says it is legal to carry this on your person. There was information that just came out that you can also find on our link tree about the disparities since July 20th with the decrim laws. And I put decrim in quotation marks because when you think that something is decriminalized, it is no longer illegal but actually it is still very illegal. The history of this plant, it's always been illegal for whom? 
And with decriminalization, we've seen that these exact same rate of racial disparities of black people being penalized for still having marijuana possession, it's still four times as likely to be impacted by these new decriminalization laws, just as much as it was when we were having marijuana possession illegal. Now, that does mean that we have less arrest, yes, but it means that the law enforcement is still there. No matter what, as long as we have marijuana crimes on the books, that those crimes will be enforced biasly. They have in the history of this Commonwealth, of this country, we have never enforced marijuana crimes fairly. And that's why it's important to get this decrim off of our back at the lowest level and at least legalize simple possession right now, July 1st, 2021. And that means we might not have the regulatory body all worked out. And that's okay because the profit of the cannabis industry should not be directly linked, chained to us and our legality and our liberation, just getting the cops off of us. We have to also understand that a majority of our traffic stops are the ones that are feeding into marijuana crime. So the marijuana possession charges that we are seeing are happening very much from traffic stops. I'm still on this number one value, y'all, of this letter, right? This repeal is that important. And I mentioned the traffic stops very particularly because we have to talk about this open container law that is in both bills. Both the House and the Senate have an open container law that basically says that any open container of marijuana unburnt, unburnt, will lead a law officer to also be able to presume that you are high. That also means in the car, if you have a Ziploc baggie that, you know, you opened up, but you zipped it up, we're getting ready to go to your friend's house, you have under an ounce, it is in your glove compartment. This is how both of the bills are written. If you are driving while black, a cop pulls you over. Uh, because Virginia General Assembly last year did remove the ability for police officers to search and seize your car off of the smell of marijuana, as well as they can't pull you over for saying that your brake or taillight is out. These are all just racist tactics. And I'll say a, a big thank you to Justice Ford for working on those pretextual bills. But because we put those defenses in play, Virginia, the oldest legislative body and therefore the most experienced in recriminalizing us, have put in these new crimes that apply to the car because that's where they know they get us the most. And they are allowed to continue their pipeline right to the criminal punishment system through traffic stops. So let's talk about what this new legalization bill says. It says that a cop pulls you over and all he has to say is that there is a green leafy substance that he sees in your car, in your vehicle. That's all he's got to say. And now he's able to search and seize whatever is in your car. Yeah, that seize means forfeiture. Mm -hmm. They take in your marijuana, even if it's under an ounce, seems legal. Well, they're able to search and seize. And if they find that marijuana in your glove compartment, now there's a presumption clause that says, hey, they can say you're intoxicated. Hey, you're not allowed to actually be intoxicated and driving. So now you having this marijuana in the car is a crime. Y'all ever think about why all of those DUIs increased in states that legalize marijuana? It's because again, they've criminalized a way for us to be criminals around the plant. And this DUI, this open container, 
It sounds a lot like alcohol, right? It's because it's meant to set us up to having more DUIs and still being criminal when in the plant and around the car. Remember, none of that marijuana was unburnt. No one was smoking in the car. And all the officer needed to find that marijuana and pin this on you and ruin someone's life is to say that they saw green leafy substance on the bottom of your car. And that would be enough. That could be dirt. That could be anything. So we have to be really serious about what Virginia is proposing for legalization before we even talk about what the profits and the tax revenues are going to be like, because it's going to be on the backs of whom? Guess what? So and, and remembering as we're talking about expungements and things that it's going to be a lot of record sealing. So cops are going to still be able to see your records. And so when they're pulling you over, they see that you've got a prior record that is just sealed and, and the cops, the judges, the prosecutors can still see it, who are they gonna be the people that are still gonna be criminalized in this legalization bill? Ooh, that was just number one. Number two, we have to take no action in making sure that we criminalize the youth and our next generation. When I talk about no new crimes, I really mean that for youth as well. No new crimes for in the car, no new crimes for youth. And both of these bills, they are still criminalizing our youth, particularly in the Senate proposed bill, um, they have subsequent crimes. That means, hey, you get one, it might be a civil penalty. You get another one, it starts to go up to misdemeanors, class three misdemeanors. And, and what we've got to realize, you all, is that marijuana being illegal has always been a way to feed the prison for profit pipeline. And what they've realized is that as they cannot do this with adults, they can still make that profit and keep the pipeline going with our youth. And we're here to say that's not okay. And that's Virginia legalization should be. It is already illegal for youth to have marijuana. Why are we making up new crimes? All of the data says that as states legalize marijuana, there is no increase in youth use. Youth do not care. Young people do not care. College people do not care. Because remember, this is going to be 21 and, and under. They do not care about the legality in far as their use. And so they're not just going to start going ham about it because it's legal. There's no data to prove that. But it is data to prove that the population that has been most impacted, that is the majority of the arrest and the cases, are between the ages of 18 and 25. So y'all, they know that. And they know that half of that, that 20 to 18, that's still their prime population for the picking. And we can't allow that. We've got to be able to say, if we're truly going to legalize, this as a new value system. And we have to say, if youth are caught with it, then we need to make it not criminal, not empty their bank accounts that could go into collections and also create more barriers to uh, having housing and school because they're proposing things like $200 for a fine for a 20-year-old, an eight, under 18-year-old of having marijuana. We know that's going to go on the parents. We know it's going to go on the families that are barely affording their rents and their car and whatever else is happening in this pandemic. So they're recriminalizing our same populations that have already felt the brunt of this. So we need to make sure that we're following rise for youth. We want to really talk about the expungement pieces this compromise that we have not been able to see in marijuana, it seems like they're able to do that in the expungement. And shout out to Legal Aid Justice Center, shout out to No Left Turn, shout out to the Virginia Expungement Council that Marijuana Justice is really excited to be a part of that has been working on the expungement pieces so that we can get something going 
with automatic expungement because we have none now and, and talk about what re record ceiling is going to look like so that people can still get jobs so they can get housing so they can go to school. But it's going to be important too that we continue to educate folks on what record sealing is and the difference of collateral consequences versus it's still going towards any future sentencing that might come up when you're in front of a Virginia judge again. Um, so we're really still talking about how many of these licenses are going to go to social equity people, how many of these licenses um, are going to make sure that they are done by Virginians. Right now, you do not necessarily need to be a Virginia resident to apply for these licenses as they are proposed right now. The social equity clause says that the resident does have to um, be a Virginia resident as, as the applicant. And so that's why we're saying that 50% of these capped licenses, they're saying about 400 dispensaries, that's going to model a lot like the ABC. So in your district, however many ABC stores you have, that's probably what it will look like for how many dispensaries are in your area as it's proposed right now. So since we know there's going to be a cap on how many we can have, we want to make sure that social equity is the priority and these applicants that have had the harm done to them and have come from these communities that have been disproportionately impacted by over-policing, then we, we need to know that they are in the forefront and able to get their chance and we just don't have the tokens chosen for these social equity licenses or these licenses in general, right, across the country. Um, there's also this piece and the social equity clauses that talks about you can apply and qualify for a social equity license if you simply just hire 10 of those impacted people. I just need to pause and remind everyone of this history that we that we sit and stand in in Virginia Commonwealth. This is the loophole that's going to allow for nobody impacted to actually get those licenses and social equity the way that it is written right now is going to come with capital benefits. You actually going to have zero to low interest loans for social equity applicants from the tax revenues. They're creating the cannabis equity reinvestment fund. These applicants are going to get these benefits. And if those applicants are actually just more employers, overseers of people that are impacted and paying them the very least and their hourly wages, then this is something else we cannot have. And that is not what social equity is made of. We'd also like to really see them ban vertical integration, but also not having some type of micro business structure for smaller entrepreneurs and to have some guardrails. Um, right now, that's another big discrepancy and difference in the two bills of how they are managing larger companies, um, as well as just this gap between legality and when the market's open. As of right now, Besides Jennifer McClellan in the Senate and besides some language in the Senate, they would like to say nothing is legal, simple possession, none of that is legal until we can start making a profit, which will probably be around 2024. Okay. And um, last but not least, we are also asking that we have 70% of the tax revenues of cannabis going to that reinvestment fund. Yeah, it's going to be important that, that we get the majority of the tax revenue. We understand that equity is actually about the dollars that are coming our way and not just diversity and inclusion. No, no, no. How much money are you actually putting towards this legalization? 
right? Um, and that's why it's gonna be important right now that we continue this advocacy, we continue the fight. Again, I just went over the basic letter that ACLU Virginia Marijuana Justice, Justice Forward, Rise for Youth, as well as 21 organizations that you've probably heard around, including Virginia uh, Student Power Network, including Minorities for Medical Cannabis, including New Virginia Majority, Justice Democrats. I mean, we've got people on here that we're just so proud that they are standing for equitable legalization. And right now, this legalization is just not it, y'all. Up next, we rejoin the Canna Hour replay, where we begin by hearing from Suli Stinson Clay. Stay tuned. I just wanted to say thank you to you for the work that you're doing because it's so important. And, you know, the issues that you're highlighting are exactly the right issues at exactly the right time. So, you know, hopefully you'll be able to make a change because really it's, been, you know, like you said, the law is being written now. So uh, it's urgent. So it is. And, and these types of um, impacts, it's, it, it's impossible to undo them, right? And um, many folks are saying, well, we're going to do disparity studies afterwards. And that just is saying, well, we'll have to wait to see what harm is done. Yeah, no, we can't wait for justice. And, you know, in terms of licenses, like you said, there's only 400 retailers that'll be given out. So it's like, it's like television licenses or radio licenses. Once they're gone, they're gone. And then their value just skyrockets. And, you know, some people get wealthy and others don't. So, right. um, you know, this industry, unlike so many, just has such a clear need for equity. So many folks sitting in jail for marijuana use possession, whereas so many folks are getting rich off of this industry and never have suffered from that. So it's exactly. critical. Well, let me do a, a quick introduction of you because you deserve it. Um, Suli Stinson Clay is a business lawyer with over 20, per, 20 years of experience in advertising companies, investors, and leaders in the areas of corporate finance, private equity, venture capital, commercial transactions, debt financing, and mergers and acquisitions, and amongst many others. No, no, you deserve all this. Because you, you, we're all going to sit through this. She's currently chair of the corporate group of McKinnon, Shelton, and Hen and a minority and woman-owned law firm. Suli is also CEO of Stinson uh, Bushnell Industries, uh, Burt Meadow Hemp, a 250 hemp farm, hemp farm and CBD consumption product company. Suli began her career with Kirkland and Ellis and later joined DLA Piper US, where she's a partner in the corporate finance and private equity departments. Suli has an AB magnum cum laude in African-American studies and visual environmental studies from where? Harvard, and a JD from Harvard Law. I introduce to you, Suli Stinson Clay. Thanks so much. Thank for you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. So yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, uh, I've been practicing in the area of corporate, corporate law, corporate finance for a long time. And I used to be with a big law firm and I'm now with a small minority owned law firm. And it's given me the flexibility to really do the type of work I wanted to do. I've always wanted to, um, focus on businesses that were either run or serving minorities and helping them to really build wealth. Right. And so this is just a natural progression for me to transition into cannabis because there's a lot of companies raising a lot of money, needing a lot of corporate law advice. Um, a lot of folks in the industry are, are new to structured finance. And it's so critical, particularly if you are a social equity applicant and you're trying to maintain ownership and control and the profits from your business. 
Um, you know, there are so many folks out here trying to take advantage. And as these laws are written to give advantage to social equity, then that just makes you a target for vultures. And, you know, it's so important to have good representation really to protect yourself and ultimately to protect, you know, what's yours. And, um, you know, it's been an interest of mine all along to just give support to Black businesses. And, it, you know, just seeing the disparities, I think uh, early on I attended one of the large conferences and I went to the institutional investors part of the conference. And, you know, there wasn't a woman or a person of color in the entire place. And I mean, a thousand people, a thousand people, you know, and, and, and you know, having, having seen that room and then, you know, also seen the inside of jails, you know, it's just not, it's not okay. So, uh, you know, whatever I can do to support and protect us in this industry and to carve us out a, a larger piece of it, you know, that's really what, what I'm here to do, so. Right, great. You know, I, I do. I live in Washington D.C., so I'm I'm not a Virginian, but I'm very close to Virginia, and uh, you know, the, the things that are coming up in Virginia have happened before. Uh, you know, there's history in Illinois. There's history in Maryland. I mean, complete debacles, and uh, how laws have been rolled out. And you know, it, it, hopefully, we learn from our mistakes. Um, you know, Illinois is a good one because they, you know, got a debacle on their hands right now because of the way the this law that they wrote, everyone was really praising. Uh, and now it's, it's under attack. So, you know, trying to get it right is critical. And, and would you mind um, talking a little bit, because my next question was gonna be, what are some of these lessons that we can learn? Would you mind talking about what's going on in Illinois? Well, okay, so you have the constitution, which is an issue, because uh, what they would like to say is, let's just give some licenses to some black folk. That's what they would like to say. But they know that if they do that, they're gonna be challenged under the law constitutionally. And so they always write these laws with these loopholes. You know, they, they, they want it to go to disproportionately impacted minorities without actually <laughs> saying it. So it's, it's by your neighborhood or it's, you know, it's, do you have a family member that's been incarcerated? And they're getting better at how they're defining it. I think they're getting closer to the people that need to be um, put at the head of the line. Uh, and how they're defining it but you know there's these loopholes and you know like you said if you hire a sufficient number of uh, people from proportionally impacted well you're right I mean that's just employment and you know what's employment today could be gone tomorrow and you know there really isn't a uh, somebody that comes in later to make sure that you're still doing what you said you were doing back when you got the license and you know even ownership you know these uh they call them MSOs multi-state operators uh, they have tons of money, you know, and they come into town and they find you and maybe you couldn't find any money and it's distract your, your license is distressed. You're running out of time. The law usually says you've got a certain amount of time to get it up and running. You know, you need to, uh, you know, sell. And now it's owned by, you know, a multi-state operator and there's no, there's no diversity anymore. So, right. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the lessons are just, you know, let's look at our mistakes. And, you know, I think you are highlighting quite a few of them, like what you mentioned about vertical businesses going for micro businesses. You know, in the states where you have multi-state operators with vertical licenses, and by vertical, we mean you have the retail, you have the production, and you have the cultivation, so you can do it all. Uh, you know, they, they're monster companies now. I mean, yep. really. Um, and by, you know, I think the law is written, one of them does ban verticals, 
but it doesn't allow it for micro businesses. And so again, I think, you know, that's an excellent point you make because smaller businesses need that advantage. And, and Suli, these are things that have come up in other states' conversations, which is why they've, we're trying to get them now, right? And so we think that the House version is what you're, you're saying. The House version that was proposed has this vertical integration amendment that we do really like. There is no language at all in either of the bills for micro-businesses. Um, so I'm, I'm worried that in that conference process, that will not be anything new. Normally in conferences, there's nothing new that comes out. Um, they deal with the language that's sent in there. So um, thank you for, for lifting that point as someone that's also been in this industry for a long time because we had the JLARC report come out to, to try and push this narrative to say, hey, legislators, um, we fought really hard for that in 2020 because we knew that we would need some evidence to say, unless we do it this way, we're going to just continue to stay number one in corporate business for the nation oh, yeah. and for workers. Because admit it, I mean, there are a lot of folks out here who you know, they got a couple of plants in the basement and they cook up some edibles for their friends and they're full vertical. <laughs> they're just, they're just illegal. You know, why, why shouldn't they have a path to legality? You know, they have, they probably have a talent they've cultivated over years, you know, and it's very valuable in other places where you can get a job doing this now, you know, and, and it's held that value in our community for generations now. Like we've been in it, we have the experience. This is why folks talk about the legacy market in that way is that there, there should be a true path for that. Um, what are some other lessons um, that you've heard of or I know you've been able, thank you so much to take a look at our language. What are mm -hmm. some other things you really wanna bring up? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I was reading through the, uh, the uh, uh, summaries of the two bills and I hadn't even picked out what you picked out regarding um, some of the new crimes, you know, that they've come up with. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's pretty sneaky, honestly. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that you're on it. Um, you know, Virginia is a, <laughs> a special place. And, you know, when you say about the cops, I mean, living in DC, right? Like as soon as you cross that bridge, you're like, okay, I better make sure everything's legal because odds are I'm getting pulled over. And it's true, I get pulled over in Virginia all the time. And so, you know, if you can't have a closed container in your car of cannabis, how how are you to carry it otherwise? I mean- Truly, it, it, truly I, that's been our question to the legislators. It essentially makes it illegal to have it in your car depending on the discretion that the cops want to give that day. And we always know- So, so it might as well not even be a one ounce legal. And I, you know, it's a, it sounds like they want to make up to one ounce legal, but then raise the penalties for above five pounds. But they also say you can't bring any cannabis into Virginia. So, you know, does that mean if I have it in my car with my DC plates? Mm. Am I illegal or is it legal? So, uh, you know, I think there are some areas of the law that can be exploited here, you know, by police that do like to police pretty hard down there. You know, when we talk about this, they say that, well, at, since decriminalization, the police aren't going to do this anymore. And we should trust that. So, mm. well, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would love to hear a little bit about um, your, you said you're really supporting social equity folks there. And so what is kind of, um, not your day to day, but what would, what would that look like for your support for someone that's that's getting in as a social equity applicant? Sure. Well, you know, I represent businesses as an attorney. So, you know, these are small businesses, a lot of them brand new, a lot of them with lots of partners and relationships that have to be put on paper. And that's very important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Virginia, it's been interesting because they, you know, they've already legalized medicinal, obviously. And 
Um, they had one, uh, one license that they snatched away from somebody that came available. And so a lot of people were rushing to apply for it. Now mm -hmm. I understand there's a lawsuit that's delaying that. Um, but with the new, you know, with the new law rolling out, I think a lot of folks, you know, as soon as these bills come through, the folks that really want these licenses are really all over it. And I mean, over it. And so they are already strategizing, already looking for locations, already, you know, planning their team, figuring out who their social equity person's going to be because they need one because it's not them, you know, usually. And, you know, figuring out what those relationships will be. And, you know, as again, what's interesting about the law from a social equity perspective is that it does give social equity applicants a, um, a head start, not a very long head start, mm -hmm. but the first applicants will only be social equity applicants, it looks like. So that's mm -hmm. positive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, having first mover advantage is important. I don't know that six months uh, when you have to raise capital and you have nobody to get it from, um, you know, is enough time, to, uh, enough of a head start. Um, mm -hmm. But having that is useful. You know, one of, the, one of the things that I've been kind of thinking about uh, is whether these competitive situations are at all good for social equity at all. And some of this conversation has come out of what's going on in Illinois because, you know, folks spend a lot of money on these applications. I mean, six figures and up, really. And if you think you're gonna just apply and, you know, write it yourself, you know, you might as well stop. And, you know, and don't empty your bank account for it unless you're going to hire somebody else to write it and do it the right way, because otherwise you really are throwing your money out the window. And hundreds of people apply for, you know, dozens of licenses. So how much money, how much, you know, money that needs to be in the community is thrown away uh, on some hopeless effort that you're going to lose because your competition has millions of dollars. Right. You know, and they've done it 10 times. So they've already written it before. You know, and it's very challenging to win one of these competitive licenses and very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but in Illinois, it's become a lottery uh, for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, some of the thoughts are that a lottery is really true social equity because you, you don't have to spend one dollar on an application. Right. If you're throwing your hat, your name into a hat, right. whoever wins, the money's going to come. I mean, if you get a license, the money's going to find you some kind of way. Oh, yeah. um, because they're limited. And so, uh, you know, maybe a lottery is uh, the best bet for social equity. Um, but that's not what it looks like going to happen in Virginia. It looks like it's going to be competitive. So yeah, you, know, well, you have to be very organized and you have to move early. And, you know, what I hear is you have to be politically connected. You yeah. know, I don't, I assume that's true. <laughs> it's kind of true everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I would say that I'm, I'm continuing to say as proposed right now, I really do want to have some hope that there will be um, the ability to continue to work on this language, particularly in social equity. And, and they're talking about doing it a few years ahead. So I'll tell you that I've uh, to tell everyone and to tell you, it's been really hard to continue to in introduce new concepts to the legislators without them being like, hold on, I'm done. Right. Yeah, um, and, it's, and they're tired because they've got way more bills and than just this. So um, I really appreciate you continuing to bring this up. So it's not just out of the mouth here from the same old folks that, you know, we need to continue to really look at what's going well and what's not, even if it's just, you know, six months ago, because that's how quickly the cannabis industry is changing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the fund, the fund is a positive aspect, you know, and that's something that came out of Illinois, who knows how it will be implemented. But, you know, if you could, that's the biggest issue. You get one of these licenses and 
you know, if it's a dispensary, it's one and a half million dollars to stand it up, you know, not in an expensive area. And so where are you, where are you going to get that? It is out here, you know, but how do we find it? Um, and, you know, having a low interest loan from the government out of this fund, um, you know, would be a nice resource for social equity applicants. So I hope that stays. Right. I, I believe that it will. Um, I, I think that they feel like we're getting greedy asking for 70% versus a 30% that was proposed. Um, but like you said, that these licenses are really expensive and we want to be able to have the resources to support the social equity applicants. Not to mention the other community supports that the fund is supposed to be able to manage to fund as well. Yeah. So yeah. reminding folks that it's the micro and the macro uh funding streams that we're going to have to continue to put out there and why we're, we're asking for the 70%. Um, what should Virginia prepare for after legalization is passed? You touched a little bit about this competitiveness and what that means. Um, I've, I've told people that they really do need to start getting their collectives together and, and being something formal. And you mentioned that a little bit. Would you talk a little bit more about that, of, of how folks can prepare after legalization? Well, you know, depending on, I mean, if you want to obtain a license, then, you know, the very first thing you have to do is read the law, you know, from cover to cover, because it's a hev obviously heavily regulated industry. The law is going to tell you everything you need to know about applying, um, but it's an RFP process. So if you've never been through an RFP process, find someone who has, because uh, it's significant amount of work. This is not something you do over the weekend, you know, and the regulations haven't been written yet, so we don't know what they say but they're pretty much going to make you do a lot of work, I assure you, because that's how they weed, weed you out. And, you know, I think that's a, that's an important thing to be ready is to just have that law, you know, memorized basically so that you can check it off. Um, you know, I think once really quickly, RFP y'all is request for proposal, just so everyone knows what that is. Right. So if you know anyone that has uh, responded, the government puts out a lot of RFPs for government contracting work. You know, if you know anyone that's done get that kind of work, of which there are quite a few people of color, uh, find them because what they do for that translates to this. Um, you know, there are a lot of writers out here. Uh, so if you're going to invest in something, I would suggest investing in a, a winning writer, someone who has won, <laughs> won a <laughs> license before. There's also a lot of scammers uh, who are just trying to collect a check. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's all the good business steps you would take for starting a business, form your company, write your business plan, get your projections together, you know, all, you know, all of the things that would go into a business. And, and, and honestly, one of the things that they could do with this fund is to provide business support to people because, you know, like in L.A., you, you could get a license if you I think the cap on their micro licenses was $50,000 a year income. You know, but now you're supposed to walk in and run a multi-million dollar business. Like that's just destined for failure. You need support. Uh, I couldn't, you know, it's hard to run a business. And so, um, you know, having the community resources to support these businesses, because as I was saying, consolidation is coming, right? So if, if the MSOs aren't in round one, you know, they're going to they're gonna find a way to get into round one. But if they can't, they're going to be right there with their money waiting for you to fail, um, you know, looking for opportunities to snag your license. Right. Um, they might, they might even loan you some money to get it, but it's secured with your license. And when you don't pay them back, then they're going to take your license. So, you know, having a good lawyer is important. Um, and also just, um, you know, being mindful as you, as you move, I mean, you know, you want to pick good partners. Um, yeah. 
And uh, MSO is a multi-state operator. That's right. um, that, that question in, in the chat as well. Um, and so we've had, uh, right now, the, the bills have a lot of room for the um, board members underneath this cannabis authority to create more of what, how the money would be spent. And, and really continuing to see is there a social equity incubator that does more than just loans, but does some more of this business support um, and, and some of these different type of certifications that could also provide maybe some of the support. So there is still room, I'm trying to be really help, hopeful um, to, to be able to develop these. And I know there's a lot of energy, particularly from black entrepreneurs, black economic justice folks that have been around Virginia forever that would be able to be great folks to be tapped into to say this is how we're now we're able to kind of build our community structure and everyone that's wanted to participate what else anything else that you'd like to say to virginians as we're in this process or even after we legalize uh i mean yeah there is something interesting that i was going to mention uh that i just learned about in michigan so it, because i'm a corporate finance lawyer i'm familiar uh, you may not be familiar with something called regulation crowdfunding which was something that was passed during the Obama administration that allows you to crowdfund online to raise capital for your business. And that's a fairly new thing. Um, but the nice thing about it is traditionally, the only people that could invest in small businesses like these were so-called accredited investors, which are basically people that make a fair amount of cash or already worth a lot of money. You got to make over $250,000 a year or be worth more than a million dollars then you're accredited, you can be trusted to invest your money into someone private. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, you know, only credit investors could really benefit to this huge growth that you see in these startup businesses. Right. You know, you couldn't get into Google until it went public unless you were accredited, right? right, right. And so Regulation CF takes away the need to be an accredited investor and has income limits and says, okay, if you make this much, you can invest up to this much, but you can invest and they can advertise on the internet, which is all a new thing. Right. So um, regulation CF was recently increased. It used to be, you could only raise a million dollars, but now they've raised it to 5 million. Okay. And it's a very simple process with the SEC. There's uh, internet portals that handle this. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because uh, in Michigan, they're actually trying to set up a centralized regulation CF portal Mm -hmm. where anyone in Michigan, anyone anywhere who wants to invest in a Michigan social equity cannabis business can yeah. go to this portal and can, can invest in these businesses, whether you're accredited or not. And then these businesses have a one-stop place that they can go to put their you know, story out there to try to raise capital. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an attempt to use Regulation CF you know, to, I think, sort of democratize your ability to get in on some of these early startup investments. And so, I love this. so these are cash flowing businesses. And, you know, as a, as a unaccredited investor, your only option is to buy shares of some publicly traded cannabis company, which, right. you know, is doing good right now, but is not the same. They're not run by black people. Right. So if you, if you want to invest in our communities and our people, I think that's an awesome tool. So, and that's what I just read about it in Michigan. It's something that could be brought to bear in Virginia. I yeah. think if someone was interested and, you know, have this centralized place where folks can invest in their own community. Right, right. And so, that's, that's something that's run by the state that they're doing. I don't think so, actually. Mm -hmm. And I, I wish it. I had looked it up before I got on. on the. <laughs> okay. But uh, no, I think, I think it's a private, it's a private effort. 
Nice. nice. Really I actually to, would love that even more, to be honest. Yeah, to just try to bring more capital to bear because that's really, I mean, in what I do, that's the biggest thing. I can't tell you how many people come to me and say, I, you know, I have this great opportunity, but I need, you name it, $2 million, $4 million. You know, and it's like, well, where are we going to get that? You know, <laughs> yeah. where are we going to get that? So, Wow. Well, um, Suli Clay is how, how can people kind of continue to follow or support you at all? Oh, sure. I mean, I, uh, I'm online. I can be found uh, on LinkedIn and my law firm is um, McKinnon, Shelton and Hen. So we're at uh, www.mshllp.com. And I'm the only Suli any, anywhere pretty much. So, you know, you can find me easily. would be happy to, you know, continue the conversation. Suli, thank you so much for this, especially for bringing up that crowdfunding piece. I remember when that happened, but it does take these minds to come together and see how we can use these new instances, laws for our advantage. Absolutely. Well, thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's part three of the Reefer Revolution. Stay tuned to hear from Aruru Rowe, who is reporting right from Greensboro Correctional Center. He's a prison lawyer that's in there fighting for his people as well as for himself. This Saturday, February 27th, the community is now going to stand in solidarity for him. Stay tuned to hear from his story. Learn more about the rally on February 27th on their social media accounts at Justice for Uhuru Row. And this is just a note to our listeners that this interview is taking place inside of a correctional facility. And so the audio may be a little bit hard to understand at times. But let's take a listen to what Uhuru has to say. Well, um, I've been in prison for 26 years.
UCC at gmail.com. You can also learn more about my history and view my writings on my blog at consciousprisoner.wordpress.com. I would like to thank Sarah McLaughlin for recording this message and Chelsea Hayes Wise for giving me this platform to tell my story on her podcast with Well, that is all for this week on Race Capital. Reminder that Race Capital airs every Wednesday at 10 a.m. on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. You can find the extended version of this episode on your favorite podcasting app.